The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hello and welcome to Out of Office. I hope 2021 is off to a calm start for you and that this year is kinder to our planet. I'm delighted to kick off the new year with a conversation with someone I've been trying to interview for a long time. He's a physician. And there was a long period of time where my mom was still wondering why I hadn't started a cardiology practice. He's also a global business leader. Meet Vaz Narasimhan. He spoke to me from his home in Basel, Switzerland, where Novartis is based. Vas became the CEO of the healthcare giant in 2018. I, I had always thought of myself as somebody who would lead in our big R&D organizations. I had a few uh, experiences also running um, you know, other parts of Novartis, but most of my experience has been in public health and, and R&D. And so I was surprised they chose a physician scientist for the, for the role, but also very excited, very humbled as well. We talked about his career. He told me about someone who's had a huge impact on his life, personally and professionally. His grandmother. He keeps a picture of her on his desk. You know, somebody who only had a first grade education, um, raised uh, in the end, well, 11 children who, who, who survived. Some of her children died in, in childhood. Uh, her husband passed away uh, while she was raising that family and still managed to get uh, everyone through school most of her children have master's degrees. I think those, it's interesting, I think those stories that you hear as a child, that get ingrained in you as a child, do shape your mindset. They shape how you see the world. They shape your sense of resilience. How he's getting through the pandemic. One of the things I've adopted during the pandemic is a gratitude practice. Every morning with a simple app, I, I try to write down a few things I'm grateful for, a few things that, uh, will make today a great day. And, and of course, during the pandemic, being at home, these things are very simple things. I mean, these aren't um, fancy things in the end, but it just gets you in the right mindset to be grateful for little things. His Indian-American identity. It's amazing to see. And of course, uh, Kamala Harris's is, is, uh, origins are from Chennai, which is also where my origins are yes. from. And, it's extraordinary to see this moment where not only do we have a woman vice president, we have a vice president as well of, of Indian origin. So very inspiring, also inspiring for, for my kids. And his idea of family fun. It's a been a little harder with, uh, with COVID, but you know, we, we <laughs> do jump in the Rhine River and float down the Rhine River um, quite, quite regularly. So that's, that's, a, that's something that's a, kind of a tradition here. So. That's 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 something fun. Here's Vaz Narasimhan on Out of Office. So Vaz, welcome to Out of Office. Hey, thanks. Great to be here, Malika. I want to begin by looking ahead. What are you most hopeful about and what are you most optimistic about for 2021? You know, there are a few things I, I feel excited about. One, um, when I think about the power of science uh, to develop vaccines faster than we've ever seen, the power of therapeutics and the ability then to hopefully bring to an end this pandemic. 
I think that's remarkable. Being a, a physician scientist who's worked in the field for so long, I think the ability for science to overcome this pandemic is something I'm very much looking forward to. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing our organization again in person. I've been working uh, from home, from my son's bedroom for, for far too long. <laughs> so I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, I'll have the opportunity to see our people, um, our people again. So I'm really, I'm really looking forward to, to that uh, as well. And then probably, you know, lastly, I'm, I'm looking forward to continuing. I, we have a, a big agenda at Novartis. So I'm looking forward to continuing that work. So a lot of things to look forward to. So you've been working out of his son's bedroom and he's been okay with that? He's been okay. It gets tougher after school, I have to say. <laughs> Around uh, 3, 3 p.m. it gets a little it gets a little more dicey, but at least during the day it's okay. How old are your children? My children are 12 and 10. Okay, my kids are similar age, uh, 11 and 13. Yeah, so yeah. so it it actually works out works out okay. We've managed we've gotten into a rhythm, I think a pandemic rhythm at home, I'd say. Yeah, it's the same, but yes, the rhythm changes uh, dramatically after 3 p.m., right? It does, it does. And I, I've realized I'm not, I was not meant to be a home educator. It's a good learning, I guess, life learning for me. <laughs> now you took over as the CEO of Novartis in 2018, and you've said you were surprised when you were offered the big role. I was surprised, you know, I, I had always thought of myself as somebody who would lead in our big R&D organizations. I, had a few uh, experiences also running you know, other parts of Novartis, but most of my experience has been in public health and, and R&D. And so I was surprised they chose a physician scientist for the, for the role, but also very excited, very humbled as well. Physician scientist, yes. You went to Harvard Medical School. Before that, you, have, you had a degree from the University of Chicago in biological sciences. I'm curious about that pivot. When you went to Harvard Medical School, were you aiming and hoping to be a doctor? Yeah, I think uh, I was hoping to be a doctor. And, my, and there was a long period of time where my mom was still wondering why I hadn't started a cardiology practice and was wondering <laughs> what are all these other things I, I ended up doing. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, I had an opportunity while at Harvard Medical School to work with some really great, great people. I mean, people like Paul Farmer, Jim Kim, Richard Cash, all big public health figures working in developing countries. And, and I became very interested in, in innovation and providing innovation, access to innovation, leadership topics. And also I think got a, a little bit of a bug to try to do something different. And I didn't know exactly what that would be. You know, that led me in, in a couple of twists and turns, ended up at Novartis, ended up working on vaccines for many, many years. And that ended up being a, a great fit. I can't say I had a great plan at that time, mm -hmm. uh, but it, it all it all sort of worked out in the end. You worked on vaccines for many, many years. How come Novartis didn't jump into the race to develop a COVID vaccine? You know, we, we had a, a very successful vaccine business, but we sold it in 2014 to, to GlaxoSmithKline. And so with that, you lose a lot of the know-how and, and capabilities. So it didn't really make sense for us to jump into the race. We focused on therapeutics and providing access to our generic medicine. So I think we could meaningly contribute. Uh, but I, of course, was closely watching as well the vaccine race. Being somebody who worked for so long in vaccines was, was really interested to see how things would unfold. Are you excited that there are vaccines out there now? And like, I'm, you know, I'm in London today and people in the UK have started getting vaccines. I'm, I'm truly astounded, actually, because developing a vaccine for a respiratory virus is extremely difficult. It's not something that we've typically done. Influenza is one example. But for many decades, the field has struggled to develop vaccines against any respiratory virus. And to have a new one come up 
use a completely new technology like RNA uh, vaccines, which have also been things we've worked on for a long time and historically never worked, and have everything come together, I think is some combination of, of the power of science and the power of technology to overcome you know, many of humanity's challenges. A lot of luck, but also I'm sure a tremendous amount of hard work by all the people involved. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, and watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV Plus. talk to you a little bit about your leadership style. You know, 2020 has been such a challenging year and it's been challenging for leaders of large organizations. What do you think are the most important values a business leader needs to have to navigate a company and employees through such a difficult time? I think a, a few dimensions uh, strike me as, as important. I mean, w- one is the ability to, to stay centered yourself. I think one of the things that we don't appreciate enough about leadership and something I always try to emphasize to people on their leadership journeys. If you can't lead yourself, you can't lead anyone else. And leading yourself is a lot about practices. It's a lot about having habits that, that you form that enable you to be in a proper state of mind. So I think about in mindset, movement, nutrition, recovery, what are practices I need to, to do to ensure that I'm in, in, the, in the right place to, in order to multiply the energy of my teams? So I think that's a huge dimension, leaders, especially in a situation where you're so disrupted, working from home, can't do things in the normal way, standing in front of screens for hours. You know, self-investment, self-leadership is, is extremely important. I think the second, we have this philosophy at Novartis called Unboss, where you, you really try to empower, and this forces you to empower your organization, set clear goals, set a vision, but in the end, you just have to trust that the organization will navigate the, the complexity. And I think the pandemic has forced leaders into that place. You can try to micromanage, but it's very hard to micromanage from a virtual environment. And I think that is part of the future of, of leadership. The third part, uh, alongside that self-leadership and, and unbossing and empowering, I think has to do with navigating complexity. And, and the tricky thing about navigating complexity is in many ways, you have to let go of feeling that, that you can control where the, what's going to happen next. And I like to think of it as a big game of Tetris. Uh, I heard this analogy from a, a leadership thinker that these pieces fall and you can't control when the next piece falls. But what you can do is try to make sense of that piece for your people, for yourself, and then wait for the next piece to fall. And the pieces will keep falling. There's no point in getting frustrated by that, but you just have to navigate you know, this giant game of Tetris and, and and take it step by step, knowing that you won't be able to exactly predict. I mean, none of us probably thought six weeks ago we would end up having two or three vaccines. And here we are. I know, absolutely. You talked about practices. Um, we all need certain practices um, as a way to invest in ourselves. What are some of the practices you follow? 
Yeah, I, I have a, a, a whole routine every day. Uh, some of the things I, and some it. of them I've added during the pandemic. You know, I, I first and foremost, the foundation is sleep. I mean, I, I try to sleep eight hours. I'm convinced that number one thing every leader should do is make sure they sleep enough. Sleep, uh, the health benefits are incredible. The psychological benefits are incredible. The emotional benefits, all the processing you do while sleeping. So I think sleep is uh, an elixir, I mean, for in many ways. I always reflect that sleep has been preserved by evolution for 600 million years. So there's probably something there with respect to sleep. Um, and then I, I exercise. I'm a, I'm a big believer that exercise, whether that's a walk or whether that's a, you know, a fitness routine, I, I exercise every day consistently. I've added yoga to the routine. I find yoga to be a very uh, powerful exercise, mostly because you can reflect on your inability to do most of the movements and stay humble and keep working <laughs> on it. And I think that's, that's, that's really positive. One of the things I've adopted during the pandemic is a gratitude practice. So every morning with a simple app, I, you know, I try to write down a few things I'm grateful for, a few things that uh, will make today a great day. And, and of course, during the pandemic, being at home, these things are very simple things. I mean, these aren't um, fancy things in the end, but it just gets you in the right mindset to be grateful for little things. Um, I mean, some of the other things around nutrition, I do mindfulness every day or at least for 20 minutes to try to be aware of my thoughts. You know, so I, I try to keep these practices day in and day out consistently um, over time. And I think it builds up resilience. Resilience is not something you you get by just willing yourself to be resilient. Resilience is built by practices that you follow day in and day out. I'm so encouraged to hear you prioritize this and to prioritize personal health because very often it just sort of, people don't talk about the importance of that, especially in, in your position. So I'm, I want to say thank you for highlighting it. You know, I, I, and I think there's this kind of mythology about being a warrior, but actually that doesn't yeah. help you. It doesn't help your people uh, either. I think take, you know, trying to find a way to consistently maintain your own energy only gives energy to, to the people you work with. So I'm a big believer that that is, uh, you know, a big part of the leadership journey. I know you're into your fitness. You climbed Mount Kilimanjaro once, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, we did. That's what I proposed to my wife, in fact, yes. Exactly. So I was going to say that something very special happened when you climbed that mountain. So tell us <laughs> about that. Yeah, so, you know, my wife and I had been working in uh, the hospitals in Tanzania in medical school, Kilimanjaro uh, Christian Medical Center for a few months. And uh, toward the end of the trip, we decided to, to climb, uh, climb the mountain. It was a great, great five day journey up to the top. And at the top, it got a little dicey because she was, uh, of course, uh, feeling a little the altitude, understandably, at 20,000 feet yeah. above, above sea level. <laughs> but I decided to just go ahead with it. Anyway, and I had to check again when we got to the bottom, not knowing if she said yeah, what she said yes to, said yes to something. But it turns out it, it was uh, it was a real yes, and yeah, we've been uh, happily happily married uh, ever since. So it, it all it all worked out. And you met in college, is that right? We met in medical school, first year of medical school, um, but to medical school too. She's also a physician, um, a, you know, very accomplished person as well. So Trishy is a, a a huge coach for me, but also a highly successful person on her own right. So it's actually uh, been a great adventure. How important to you and to your family is your Indian American identity? It's interesting. You know, I, I think for my wife and I, it's a big part of who we are. I think um, we grew up as uh, our parents had just immigrated from, from India. I think both of us grew up with a very strong sense 
of Indian culture, um, Indian di- small Indian diaspora communities in, in the United States. My parents started a temple in Pittsburgh. And, and so we were very closely tied to the Indian community there. Uh, I learned Tamil before I learned English from my grandmother. So I think it, uh, it was a, a very different way of growing up. I think for my kids, it's a, it's a very different world. I mean, they grew up in the U.S. They spend more, started growing up in the U.S. They've now spent more of their life in Switzerland than, than they have in the United States. So they are of Indian origin, born in the U.S., growing up in Switzerland, speaking German, French, and English. So more, I think, global citizens. Uh, and so that's an interesting thing to observe how you know, the connections can evolve in different directions. Yeah, I read that you said uh, in another interview, you said, I think I was probably focused on trying to fit in at the schools I went to. There weren't many other children of Indian origin. So I grew up always trying to figure out how to fit in. And seeing Kamala Harris being vice president-elect now, you know, that's a, that's a huge moment uh, for the Indian American community. So what are your thoughts on that? It's amazing to see, and of course, uh, Kamala Harris's is, is, uh, origins are from Chennai, which is also where my origins are yes. from. And it's extraordinary to see this moment where not only do we have a woman vice president, we have a vice president as well of, of Indian origin. So very inspiring, also inspiring for, for my kids. Uh, and I think, of course, the United States has changed. On the one hand, we always focus on the ways we want inclusion in the United States to improve. But when I reflect on what it was like to grow up in the late 70s, early 80s uh, in, in Pittsburgh at that moment in time, being one of the few people of Indian origin in a community and, and growing up. And now where you see you know, people of a broad range of ethnicities in the government and leadership roles and as CEOs, I mean, the world has progressed and, and the U.S. has progressed in its inclusiveness. And I think there's no greater symbol of that, certainly, than Kamala Harris being vice president. You mentioned your grandmother, and I believe she's had a huge influence in shaping the person you are today. How so? Yeah, my grandmother, extraordinary story in my in my mind, at least, you know, somebody who only had a first grade education um, raised uh, in the end. Well, 11 children who, who, who survived. Some of her children died in, in childhood. Uh, her husband passed away uh, while she was raising that family and still managed to get uh, everyone through school. Most of her children have master's degrees and did it from a you know, place like Thirbati, India, India and then and, and was able to do that successfully. And then in what I was growing up, always teaching me that what matters in life is how you treat other people, compassion, contribution. The other things will come and go, wealth will come and go, physical possessions will come and go. But I think those, it's interesting, I think those stories that you hear as a child, they get ingrained in you as a child, do shape your mindset. They shape how you see the world. They shape your sense of resilience. And being around a very resilient, compassionate, giving person for most of my childhood, I think had a profound impact on how I lead, how I think about leadership. Um, and so I think it was hugely influential. And this is your mom's mom or your dad's mom? This is my father's mom. And my, my grandparents on the other side were also extraordinary people. I, I don't want to say as well, also came no. from villages <laughs> also. So I think as is often the case, I think with uh, the in, uh, Indian immigrant story, it starts, you, you stand on the shoulders of giants, right? I mean, the things I've had to overcome pale in the comparison to, to what they've all had to overcome. And you keep a picture of her on your desk. I do. I do. And uh, it's her smiling. And I'm, 
it's a good way to to ground myself on what really matters because there's many things as a CEO that can take you astray, take you into places uh, you know that, that frustrate you. And, and so much about this role is maintaining perspective. And I think uh, she's a symbol of perspective for me. She helps you keep it real, right? So she taught you the importance of being resilient and of being compassionate. But you've also said in many interviews uh, how important it is to be humble. So tell us about the role humility plays in creating a successful leader. Yeah, I think I think with when we talk about self-awareness and leadership, and we talk about this being the foundation of leadership, really that the what we really mean is that self-awareness creates a deep sense of humility of, of who you are, where you fit in the world. I, I, I love these quotes that some of great thinkers have had. Carl Sagan once said, we're all made of stardust in the end, right? And, and when you reflect back, you know, you, we have all of these constructs to try to create differences amongst, amongst people and, and organizational structures. But if you can have a, a deeply humble perspective about you know, where, where, where are places in the universe, where are places in the world, where your place is in society, I think it, it enables you to touch the humanity of other people. But it, I think it requires, it requires work to keep reminding yourself of that. You need, especially in leadership roles, you need to find ways to maintain humility um, and, and empathy. I find mindfulness helps that. I find my kids and my family help me maintain that. I think when you lose that humility, you lose your real power to be to be a leader. You know, Dr. Keltner is a psychologist at the University of California, Berkeley. He's written extensively about this. When people afford a leader, real leadership, their, their reason they follow a leader is usually because they believe that that leader will create possibilities for them that wouldn't have been possible otherwise. They, they feel a sense of empathy from that leader. But as a leader, once they have that position of power, it's one of the surefire ways to have that, that those empathy considerations actually decline. And what often happens is then over time, leaders become more detached, they lose their humility, they, use the, they lose their empathy considerations and they lose their real power, though they may still have power in the org chart. I reflect a lot about that and how do you maintain that? And it, it, takes, it takes effort, especially when you're in uh, a senior role. Are you interested in philosophy? I know you took a course on it while you were studying medicine. I'm I actually in, at the University of Chicago. I spent two years working uh, or, or taking classes in, in a part of the university called Fundamental Issues in Text, where we uh, explored uh, a range of philosophical thinkers, uh, Aristotle, Plato, um, some of the, uh, the other great Western thought writers. And at the same time, I became very interested in, in, in the Tao Te Ching as one example, I think a tremendous uh, leadership book some of the Buddhist writings, as well as, you know, rereading many of the things my grandparents taught, taught me growing up, like the Bhagavad Gita. And uh, those, those texts, I mean, it's funny, leadership in some ways, is, uh, leadership thinking is just revisiting what we know about human beings again and again. So in, in general, most of the things we talk in the leadership text today, business school books today, can all also be found in 700 BC. I mean, we know these things. It's just really hard. The practices are hard. Maintaining it is really hard. And you have to create a way to make it relevant for the current circumstance. And I think that's a, a big part of it. But uh, I think we've known the truths about human development and leadership for, for centuries. 
you come from a family of scientists. Uh, you went to Harvard Medical School. You have multiple master's degrees. You're interested in philosophy. You're one of the youngest CEOs of a giant company. What do you do for fun? <laughs> I need to find. That's a good point. I need to do more more things for fun. Uh, I, for fun, I hang out with my kids. I love to travel with them. Uh, I'm very passionate about. Um, conservation. So I, where I spend time on a board uh, called, of an organization called African Parks, which is dedicated to running the, the largest number of national wildlife preserves in Africa. And I'm very, I enjoy that um, tremendously. But I think a lot of my fun comes from spending time, spending time with the family and, and uh, exercising. I mean, that's, I need, but my wife and kids always tell me I need to find more more things to do that are just silly. So I'm working on that. I'm working on that. <laughs> Tell me, what's the last silly thing you did with your kids? Oh, the last silly thing I did with my my kids. It's a little been a little harder with uh, with COVID, but you know, we we do <laughs> jump in the Rhine River and float down the Rhine River um, quite quite regularly. So that's that's a that's something that's a kind of a tradition here. So that's something fun. Most recently, it was just creating a giant pile of leaves and jumping in it. So that was probably <laughs> the most relevant one from the last week. That, that sounds like fun. I'll give you that. <laughs> and when you hit a roadblock or when you have a setback, what's your strategy for dealing with that, for bouncing back? Yeah, I think I've learned that mindfulness meditation helps to first explore how is it that this setback is really affecting me? I mean, what's really going on? I, I believe in this thinking, don't trust your mind because your mind will contort things in all kinds of different ways. And usually when you have a significant setback, you start to tell yourself a story and that story becomes another story. And before you know it, you've created a whole set of stories. So to try to be aware of the stories that, that you've created, I try to go to someplace to get perspective. For me, because I live on the Rhine River, a lot of it is walking by this river, just listening to this river and trying to recenter back. And then, you know, starting back with the practices, getting back on the daily practices and knowing that, that one of the great teachings of Buddhism is impermanence, that, that all of these things will change. And so the more you realize and accept the impermanence of your negative feelings or the whatever thing happened, and yeah, for a big company, things happen all the time. They'll pass, then you you will get the next moment, and then there'll be a good moment, then there won't be a good moment. And that that's all just part of the of this journey. As we look ahead to 2021, you know, we're all talking about what the new normal may be, you know, whether it's working from home or not traveling as much. So as we get an opportunity to rebuild and to reimagine the world, what are some of the changes you would hope would be permanent as we go ahead? So I think I think there's a lot of potential in how we how we use resources on the planet. I mean, I think and I'll take that kind of broad frame. So we talk a lot about travel. We talk a lot about some of the things that we may not need to do. But I think if you were to step back, I think we could really think about what are the resources we need to use to do productive things and what are resources, whether it's traveling, whether it's other consumption that actually we don't need to do. And I think that will give us an opportunity to come back to what will surely become a huge topic once the pandemic recedes, which is again, global warming, the environmental challenge. And this is an opportunity for us to reset some of those behaviors. I think it would be unfortunate if we just flip back to the, the old way of, of doing things. I think second on how human beings work and interact, how we spend our time. 
And I think there's going to be a rebalancing here. You know, we've, we've given all of our people the opportunity to have freedom going forward on whether they want to work from home or the office. My guess is it will be more in the office than we realized, but less than it was before. I think people crave human interaction, which is great. But I think now there's also the possibility of doing like we are now, uh, much more virtually. And that will hopefully open up new possibilities for how you know, we engage as organizations. I do think we have to be realistic. It's going to take time to figure out that balance. You know, it's not going to happen, happen overnight. I think the third big thing I'm interested in is how digital technologies with the explosion that we've seen, how will they reshape our way of working and engaging? And it's been a double-edged sword. I mean, some things it's clear. I mean, for instance, telemedicine, as an example, in our world, doctors being able to see patients through the internet. And yet at the same time, there have been other things where it's clear that empathy cannot be conveyed very well through a screen. In the end, patients still want to see a doctor if they have a, a difficult disease. And People at, at my company still want to see each other to feel a sense of community and culture. But I do think these digital technologies will change, you know, in, in positive ways how we live and work. So I think that's the third thing I'm, I'm looking out for. Are you a New Year's resolutions kind of person? I'm not. I'm not. Um, maybe I should be, though. I don't know. <laughs> I'm happy to come up with one, though. If you had to pick something, do you have anything on your bucket list for 2021? <sighs> what would be... What would be on my mind for 2021? We wanted to to go and and see the. I've never been to Egypt and seen the the pyramids, and so that was one thing we were planning to do this year. We canceled the trip twice, so I'm hoping to do that. Or the other trip we canceled, which was to go to to Machu Picchu, which I also have always wanted to do. So I'm hoping maybe one of these two things will go our way for for 2021. It works out for you, and I hope you get the opportunity to do many silly things with your family in 2021. <laughs> very much, Malik. It's been a pleasure speaking. Thank you so much. Take care and stay well. That was Vaz Narasimhan, the CEO of Novartis, with that incredible story of lessons in leadership that he learned from his grandmother. I hope you enjoyed our chat. Remember, Out of Office is on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Bloomberg Terminal, and Bloomberg.com. We're also on Twitter. Our handle is simply at podcasts. We'll be back in two weeks. This episode was produced by Laura Carlson. I'm Malika Kapoor. Thank you for listening and stay well. in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio.